scratch and smooth. My special guest today is an award-winning actress with many starring roles on stage and screen. She's a member of the groundbreaking Citizens Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company. Over the years, she's had several roles risen for her and is particularly well known for two iconic television characters that have lit up the screen. Ladies and gentlemen, from Widows to Wolford, a very warm welcome to Anne Mitchell. So Anne, welcome to the programme. Um, my first question to you really is, uh, who were your heroes and heroines growing up when you were young? You mean as actors? Or in oh, I, I guess both, really. Okay. Um, Nelson Mandela, Che Guevara, um, Mo Molum. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, the writers were Steinbeck, Hemingway, Scott Fitzgerald. That generation, my generation. W were you an avid reader? Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Very much so, I I love books and I love escaping into them. I uh, just, I love words and language. And I hear you're a bit of a cinema buff as well, so that was obviously yeah. lighting the fuse a little bit at a very early age. Yes, it did. Oh, unbelievably so. My mother used to take me to the pictures at, uh, three times a week. That was, we used to call it the Paragon, which mm -hmm. is now, which then became the Mile End Empire, oh. now is named something else. Um, the Troxy in Commercial Road, and there used to be a guy on an organ who would come up from the floor. Oh, fantastic. I love it. it. Wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. It was all Art Deco, of course. And the Odeon, Mile End Road, was also an Art Deco cinema, which is now a block of flats. Now, how did your parents feel about you wanting to pursue an acting career? They were very, um, I th they were enormously supportive. I think they were frightened, yeah. of course, mm. because they came from the generation where, um, of the depression mm -hmm. and so on. So having a job was of enormous importance, having that kind of security. So when their only child, when well, my mother, my beloved stepfather, decided to take such a risky path, they must have been very frightened for me, but they never showed it. They only showed confidence in me. Wow, they sound wonderful, they were, wonderful. They were amazing people. So what, I mean, do you remember some sort of a eureka moment or early pivotal time when you thought, I want to do that, or you were on stage, even if just, just at home to your, your folks? When I was five at school, outside the gymnasium, there were some steps going into the gymnasium. And I used to write plays and cast them and direct them. And I always cast myself in the lead. What a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, I guess then I knew. I knew from a very early age, Nick. Yeah. Very yeah. early, actually. Well, five-ish. So in terms of um, education as an actor, what, what was your first big step, drama school? Or? My first big step uh, was to join the Saturday morning classes at the Theatre Royal Stratford East. Oh, a wonderful theatre, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was incredible. I was about 17, I think, and I loved them. But then they closed because the um, company, Joan Littlewood's company, went to America with some shows. So they were kind of closed for about two years, three years. And uh, 
when they got back, Margaret Berry decided to open a drama school, the East 15, mm. and she rang me. By that time, I had a baby, and I'm the first ever scholarship to the East 15. Oh, wow, that's fantastic. I'm very I, proud of that. I'm very proud of that. Yeah. I've heard wonderful things about that yeah, school, of course. amazing training. It was, we were the founders, of course, as Philip Headley, the director, um, me, and there were about eight of us in the um, Robert Walker, who became my second husband. Um, there were about eight of us in the, uh, in the school at that time, and we really did. It is one of those if you like, archetypal mm. things where we really did scrub the floors yes. of the school, yes. of the youth club we were in, so that we could have money to, yes. to go on. And the training was incredible because in the mornings we would train, and it was very much a Stanislavski-based yes. training, and then in the afternoons we would perform at schools. Mm. So it was, it, it was an amazing experience. So, so constant with loads of practical work. Absolutely. Every day. Yes, every day you were putting into practice what you'd learnt, you know, in the morning and coming back and analysing it and the teachers and the tutors would criticise and analyse and so on. So getting better and better. And Joan Littlewood, did you ever meet her? Yes, many times. But she had nothing to do with Oh, no, I understand that. I just was curious about what the legend was like. Well, I liked liked her very much. I was a bit shy of (laughs) approaching her, of course. But, uh, yeah, she was... um, enormous had enormous energy and vitality mm. and uh, wit mm. was a very witty woman did you have any issues at all about something from a working class background as well as being a woman and were you expected to learn rp and all that sort of stuff did you have any concerns at all no, not that time, because that was the 60s, and the 60s was the time of the working class actor. So you came that in at a perfect time. Yeah, and I came in at a perfect time. It was Terry Stamp, Michael Caine, um, difficult to name the women, of course, Julie Christie and women like that. But uh, it was a perfect time to come in, because to be working class was enormously fashionable and exciting. It was when the world was um, embracing working-class heroes, the Beatles and all of that. All the kitchen sink dramas as well. Yes, yes, exactly, Wesker and and Osborne. Suddenly a a spotlight was thrown on working-class experience. So, no, I I didn't have... uh, I didn't have that fear. Uh, I was taught RP at drama school. Yeah. So that would obviously make it flexible for particular roles. Yes, absolutely. While I was at drama school, I was asked to do um, a Muriel Spark play. I think it was Girls of a Slender Means. And I did that we were, just as I was ending drama school. That was television. Um, Wow, very early, big gig for you. uh, Yes, it was. I I also did, which was remarkable. That was when I left drum school. I did uh, Talking to a Stranger, Mm -hmm. which was uh, remarkable. Mm. Uh, You know, the quartet with Judi Dench and Morris Denham. I never saw such a beautiful dress, such a beautiful girl ever in my whole life. I'm so happy. Happy, happy, happy! (laughs) I'm so happy! I love you. I love you too. We'll always be happy. Always and always. Always and always. 
world without end. What was it like in the 60s as an actor? I mean, it was very much a changing time for people then. Yes, I think what it was... I think it's a very interesting question, that. Because I think my generation and that period in history in the arts was not about forging a career. It didn't seem to be about that. It was a a real drive to change things. Mm. We wanted to change things. We wanted to explore different ways of being and different ways of acting and mm. so on. Of yes. course, Brando and James Dean uh, were enormous influences mm. on mm. my generation of actors. Mm. So we were radical in that sense. Mm. You know, we weren't following mm. the norm, whereas now I think it's much more conservative, uh, yeah. you know. Do you, but you still feel that acting is essentially about finding that truth. Do you feel anything has changed in acting styles and all the rest of it that is better or, or less so than in the 60s? No, I don't think that... Sorry, it's a bit of a woolly question there. <laughs> I, I think I, I know what you mean. No, I don't think it's changed. I don't think there are styles of acting mm. in that sense. I think all good actors are trying to shine a light on what it means to be human, mm. you know, and to look at human behaviour and, and to look at contradiction. I think what is... Uh, it is more difficult now. It seems that casting doesn't seem to take into account contradiction a lot now. It seems that people want to, it seems, want to typecast. I don't think there's the risk. People don't take the risk now of casting someone as opposite, exact opposite of what they are. So fresh out of drama school, and the parts seem to come your way quite well. You, you, I, I seem to remember seeing you in Upstairs Downstairs playing one of the suffragettes. What was that like? Oh, it was great. It was great fun. It was a fantastically popular series at the time and it was a, a great opportunity to be a fiery trade union leader. I love that. There's only one way to save this country and that's by revolution! <laughs> And also, did you at drama school have much training for TV acting at all? Did you have to learn all that from these early roles? Yes, we learned there was no training for TV. Mm. During that period, TV was, it wasn't really considered, mm. you know, so yeah. there was no training. There is, of course, a great deal of training now mm. in drama schools, quite rightly, um, because most actors will probably um, begin in television. Yeah. Yeah. I think Louise Jameson said they had one day in front of the camera, or half a day. <laughs> no, I don't think we even had that. <laughs> right, okay. Tell us a little bit about the Citizens Theatre Company that uh, you were involved in. And obviously, so many wonderful roles came from that. Mother for Courage, Mary Stewart, Private Lives, etc. Oh, it's... What, where can I begin about the wonder of the Citizens Theatre? It, it was run by three... Gay guys, Giles Habergol, Robert David MacDonald and Philip Prowse. Mm -hmm. And they had a vision. When they came up, they came up to the citizens from Watford. They were, Giles was running Watford and Philip and David were part of a trio. What happened was that my second husband, Robert Walker, 
uh, was invited by Giles Havergal to run the Close Theatre, which was the experimental side of the citizens. And I joined his company, and we did the most amazing, radical, revolutionary things, and were constantly being kind of told to leave Glasgow, because <laughs> there was a, quite a bit of nakedness. And Was oh, there now, Anne? Yeah. Shall we talk about this? <laughs> you little tease. Um, it, it was... It was an amazing, uh, mm. experimental, daring, bold. And Giles and Philip and Robert David MacDonald liked the work that was happening mm. there, liked the ethos of it, and they then began to, began to have a, a permanent company. Mm. So it wasn't any longer. When they started, it was a visiting star. I think Constance mm. Cummings might have been the last one. Right. And then they changed and had a permanent company. Mm. And it was incredible because it was so different from anything else. Mm. I mean, Philip Pryor's was and is an amazing designer with a very particular vision and flair. Mm -hmm. And Giles was an incredible uh, leader of the theatre in terms of he would always be in the foyer every night with a carnation in his jacket to welcome the audience in. It was brilliant. How and, charming. <laughs> yeah, it was enormously charming. And um, Robert David MacDonald was a dramaturge, writer, and so on. Um, so it was a feast of ideas and courage. They never, ever compromised right from the moment. Their attitude was, uh, if like there were criticisms, how are you bringing... Why are you three guys here? One Oxford educated, I think, something like that. What can you bring to the working class of, yeah. of Glasgow? And their response was, we will bring without condescension and we will bring the very best of ourselves, our ideas, our vision, and we will not compromise and we will not patronise which was incredible, and they didn't, and the seats were 50p, <laughs> and people came. Well, was there a lot of improv and, you know, Mike Lee type of workshops? <laughs> no. no, no, I don't think they were into Mike Lee. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I don't mean him specifically, but when you were fusing ideas together, or, or was it just you had the scripts and then you would work on it? Yes, we, we were given the scripts, okay. which were great classic scripts. Yes. There was nothing for us to twiddle about with them. <laughs> oh, I wasn't sure if you were doing any new new plays yes, as well. We, I think we did some. Well, of course, Robert David MacDonald wrote the Summit Conference for me. Right. Um, so that was a new play. But mostly I did classics mm -hmm. there. Um, no, it wasn't an improvise. No, I think Philip would have dropped dead if, it, if the word <laughs> improvisation had come into the... Scratch and sniff. With Nick Randall. So Mother Courage, you were 30 years old apparently? Yes, yeah. yes. So how was that? Oh, it was a remarkable opportunity. It was an extraordinary design from Philip Prowse. Absolutely remarkable. It was uh, like, it went through different ages in the costumes mm. and that. And on my waist, I had a real, mark that, a real burnt out ambulance. Philip had made an ambulance, a real ambulance with a red cross on it wow. that was made uh, in light, the lightest material they could make. And I had that on a rope round my waist and I dragged that round the stage. 
Any photos of it? Uh, there is a very... I don't have it here, but there is a very famous photo of me dragging it that I understand is often exhibited in Europe at various exhibitions of theatre. I, strangely enough, I don't have it. I've got to... If, if I find it online, I'll pop it on the website for us. <laughs> oh, I'd really love that, actually, Nick. Everything can be found on the internet. Yes, least. I believe so. <laughs> no, that's, and that's great, yeah. But the other funny thing was Philip made us, for the Chenchi, uh, which Philip designed at the close, which Robert Walker directed, Philip wanted us all to have bleached out hair because we had to look slightly diseased really Mm. um so we all had our hair bleached and i'd never forgotten the stage manager had the most glorious red long red hair oh no yes he wasn't a vain man at all it was his one vanity And he didn't agree with the concept of the production at all, but being totally professional, he had his... He did it anyway. Yeah, he had his beautiful hair bleached white. I hope he got it back. He got it back, of course. (laughs) And I had to have my... I had mine bleached white, and then after that I played Mother Courage, and Philip wanted me to have what he said was the last perm before the war. So for 12 weeks, I walked about. (laughs) It was horrible, but very effective. You're listening to Anne Mitchell on SNS Online. Plenty more to come, including her first defining TV role as Dolly Rawlings in Widows, and not forgetting EastEnders matriarch Cora Cross. Time for part one now of the soundtrack of Anne's life. So uh, we always ask our guests to pick a track which either can be, relate to something professional, personal, or just because it makes your feet tap, or all three. And you're allowed up to, up to two. Okay. Ella Fitzgerald, Every Time We Say Goodbye. Mm-hmm. Every time. And uh, any particular reason for that? Uh, you love it. I love it, yeah. She loves it. Let's hear it. <laughs> Good. 
Gerald, every time we say goodbye. You're listening to SNS Online with my special guest, Anne Mitchell. Different actors I've spoken to haven't necessarily had the range of parts that you've been offered. I mean, did, did you just feel you came out of drum school so well equipped and also with a strength of character about what you wanted to do? Do you think a lot of that came from the backbone of Anne Mitchell, making sure she got what she wanted? No, I don't think so. I think you'll find if you talk to most actors, their lives are about lurching yes. from one thing to the other. What I had internally was a desire to work on great material. I didn't care where it was from. I mean, at the age of 15, I was reading Eugene O'Neill. And before that, I mean, I was... 11 when I read Stanislavski and so on uh, so that was inside me that was a that was an ambition but it was also I knew I could do that mm-hmm. I knew I could do that that was me if you understand me mm. but I mean quite often you know young women young actors in the 60s could get a bit sidelined or, or, or be you know the carry-on girl or that sort of thing and yes that do you know what I mean I do know yeah. what you mean because that was <laughs> I mean I look back on that I did there was a wonderful series written for me by Troy Kennedy Martin mm. he writes all the he writes all the thrillers doesn't he he did yeah. he's, oh, he's okay. dead now I think you're thinking of his brother Ian. no no I'm old oh. enough to remember when his oh, okay. name came on the yes, credits of course Zed Cars he's yeah. the creator of Zed Cars yeah. and John McGrath and they wrote a series called Diary of a Young Man and they wrote a role for me in it there were four leading up they wrote a role for you I mean yeah. how wonderful is that oh I've had lots of roles written for me well I'm not surprised it just is amazing when yeah. I look at it I can't explain it it's just I'm so grateful oh, and so honoured, yeah, honoured, yeah, yes, it's absolutely. such an honour. and I've had, I, I think the honour goes both ways. I mean, they obviously want to, want to write for you because they know what you, you can offer. 
Well, I think with John McGrath and Troy Kennedy Martin, they uh, yes, they kept, what happened with them was I was their secretary uh, before I went to drama school. Okay. And they came to see me at drama school mm. when I played uh, Viola and Sebastian in Twelfth Night. And they came, mm. and then when they were writing and they mm. dovetailed. But what happened in that, it was Ken Loach's first direction of okay. anything. Yes. First thing Ken Loach had ever directed. It was great. And I went off afterwards. It was the time where we were all going to Spain. You know, it just begun, Freddie Laker and all that. And I went to Spain. Yeah. And it had come out uh, while I was in Spain. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. Or, you know, it was different in those days. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. And I no came, red carpet. <laughs> yeah. I came back and... Uh, I was inundated with requests for cheesecake pictures. Uh, I was appalled, absolutely appalled. I didn't understand what this was about. Now, of course, I, I would have taken all, I would have had all the pictures. But then I didn't. I kept thinking, I'm a serious actor. What is this? I had a few done that were rather nice, but I didn't, uh, I didn't understand how you had to play the game. Yes, yeah. I didn't know that it was a business. Mm. I didn't know. Do you do you just accept that life is imperfect and there is a game to be played and and why not? Now I do. I think it's not even a question of imperfect. That's the reality okay. of this industry. Mm. I knew nothing of that. I was so completely innocent mm. and just interested in art, mm. you know. Mm. But now I would approach it very differently. It sounds like your innocence really sort of protected you from a lot of, a lot of the potential nasties. Well, maybe. I hadn't <laughs> thought of it that way. Mm. It certainly wasn't nasty when they were asking for the cheesecake pictures. They were, oh, no, no. They weren't nasty. Not tasteful. They were just... It just wasn't within... I just couldn't get my head around it. I mean, one of our previous guests posed naked with a Dalek, exactly. you know. Exactly. I was <laughs> naked plenty of times on stage, but I'd never... I'd never had that kind of request in, uh, for publicity like that. You're listening to Scratch and Sniff with my special guest today, Anne Mitchell. So we get into the 80s now. Now, obviously, by then, you've had a fantastic range of uh, challenging roles in theatre, lots of different roles in TV. But then you get probably one of the most amazing roles of your TV career Absolutely. as um, a Dolly Rawlings in Widows. Sliding door in the security van. Is that what you're going to say? No, this is a raid. Stick your hands up. I've come in, you lot. Don't mess about. I got to go to work. Look, it's your voice. Can't you lower the pitch? Don't move. Well, they suss out your woman. Forget it. Look, stick something in your mouth and try it. Don't. <laughs> I bleed and choke myself for that. Did you know Linda LaPlante, the writer, before? No, this this is a very interesting story with this. Um, Before Linda wrote Widows and before it all came together, about 18 months before that, I had an interview for Chinese Detective. Oh, David Yip, wasn't it? Yes, David Yip. And it was, I think, I don't think it was long after Robert David MacDonald had written Summit Conference for me. 
And for the first time in my life, I went for this interview, I counted the lines of what they were offering me. And there were six. I was very broke at the time. I was working as a receptionist. But I looked at it and I thought, is this all this business can offer me? Is six lines. I went in and I did the reading with the director, Ian Toynton. And he said, oh, he said, that's fantastic. You know, we'd love you to do it. And I said, no, I'm worth more than this. 18 months later, Marilyn Johnson received the scripts of uh, Widows. As I understand it, she said, there is only one person to play this role, and that's Anne Mitchell. Uh, and Ian Toynton said, oh, yes. Uh, That's the kind of pride we need. Yes. But they then went on, as I understand it, to interview 500 actors. Oh, but they always do that. Yes, they, they go to, Then they go to the one no. they decided on originally. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. I, I can understand that. Yeah. Um, so I, I must say I love that story. Linda LaPlante didn't know me as an actor, but she approached Max Stafford Clark mm. and asked him, and he said, yes, she's very powerful, very strong, you know, he'd seen, I understand he'd seen work, my work at the Citizens, etc. Um, but quite understandably, she thought I was completely wrong for it. From the picture, all she had was a picture from Spotlight. Oh, right. I was going to say. I was two and a half stone heavier in this picture, and I looked like a kind of ageing hippie. I, mean, I was only 40, but for some reason, I, it wasn't good. Wasn't a good right. shot, right. and uh, uh, I lost. When I knew, I knew I had the part three months before we started filming. So I went into training. I lost two stone, two and a half stone in weight. Well, tell me how you do that, Anita. I've just put on two stone. <laughs> well, I did it through running. It was really mainly through running okay. at that time, you yeah. know. Um, and uh, when I went on the first day of filming, there was this gorgeous red-haired lady but I didn't know who she was or anything and and, and on a film set it's very tight you 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 know when there's someone on it that you don't know um and it turned out to be Linda and after she'd seen the first rushes she sent me a huge bouquet and said oh. you are Dolly Rawlins I want to talk to you Dolly is Harry still alive we tried to contact you in London Harry answered the phone. I could wear the blue then. Why did you burn the ledgers? Look, one thing at a time. If he spoke to you, then he must be. Cigarette. Is Harry still alive? Yes, yes, yes. What else do you want to know, eh? What else do you want to know? What it feels like? What he's done to me? Over and over in my mind, why, why, why? You're all so bleeding clever. You tell me why. He's alive, living with Jimmy Nunn's bitch. You've seen him then? No. I'll go on. Tell me how he could do that to me. Because all I ever did was love him. And when I, when I knew, I couldn't even cry. That girl, that young, stupid girl, looking at me like I was dirt. I gave her money. I felt such a fool. Betrayed. Humiliated. Be 
because I felt so ashamed. Because I still wanted him. I still loved him. And even worse, I still do. Do you think, I mean, obviously, uh, it was so groundbreaking because we had a female writer. We had the legend that was Verity Lambert yes. producing, uh, Linda Agram, who's one of the executive... Linda Agram, yeah. yeah. One of the executive producers. Now, who else was there? Well, and obviously all the, all the widows yes, as well. lots of women involved, yeah. of course. But I think that was important, very important. But I think as well, it was a first for many people. It was a first for Ian Toynton, mm -hmm. directing a whole series. It was a first for Linda LaPlante as the writer. I think it was a first for Linda Agron. Yeah. And it was a first for me yes. to lead a, a series, yes. a huge series. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think it made a difference that uh, Linda LaPlante not only was a writer, but she was an actor as well? Do you think that makes a difference? In terms of? In terms of writing better? Uh, four scripts? I think so. Mm. Yes, I, mm. I think there's a... If you... I mean, you know, Linda was a prolific actor. Mm. and Well, I remember as the original Miss Popoff in Rent-A-Ghost, <laughs> which is probably not her finest role, but... <laughs> <laughs> and, and, a, and a great comedian. Mm. Um, yes, I don't think there's any question. If, you're, if you've worked on so many scripts like that, you know what, what works and what doesn't. Mm. And mm. she has a very, very good ear course for dialogue. Was Dolly Rawlings based on anybody in particular when you created, obviously you were given the role, but when you created your version of her that ultimately was seen? No, I, I had nobody in mind. What I was driven by, I felt that the scripts were absolutely brilliant and they were, the narrative of the thriller was absolutely incredible. I felt what Linda was also writing about was grief, that this was a study of romantic love and grief. So that's where I put my work, as it were, into that, that I wanted the internal life of Dolly Rawlins to be about uh, grief mm. and loss and betrayal. Yes, uh, ultimately betrayal, but also keeping that dignity all the time. Of course, mm. uh, and I also, well, that was terribly important for me because having been brought up in the East End by very strong, dignified women yes. and stylish women, mm. I was very concerned that I would be representing yeah. them. I wanted, I wanted Dolly Rawlings to look not like a cliche yeah. of uh, yeah. any, any cliche of the East End. I mean, I think she was one of the first working-class characters that I can think of, female, who, who, who seemed so three-dimensional and helped drive a narrative. I mean, she, she, I think she listened to classical music. She, I think it made people sit up and realise what was patently obvious anyway about the complexity of people, but it, yes. it was a good lesson learned. Oh, it, was, it was a wonderful opportunity to do that, and the extraordinary thing about the classical record that was played... Mm which was uh, What Is Life To Me, mm. without the Kathleen Ferrier, was the only classical record I had in my childhood. Linda didn't know that. Did? Oh. And Linda wrote that. She didn't know that it was the only one that I, yes. Anne Mitchell, had ever had in the house. <laughs> we had three records, and that was one of them.
when I heard that, mm. that first day when they mm. played it, it actually sent chills through yes. me because it was an extraordinary uh, connection, mm. really strange connection. And I, I think that piece of music was originally chosen because Linda LaPlante had been interviewing various people to get a sense of the three-dimensional um, quality of a person's creator's dolly and she was surprised by certain things that she, she just assumed wouldn't be there. Like, I think she spoke yeah. to somebody who did have a collection of, of music. A criminal mind is often depicted yes. in a one-dimensional yes, way. It's not unusual in American films with Italian mm. uh, gangsters to have mm. a classical uh, background, background. Mm. but it's unusual in British. We're off then. Do you have to go? I mean now. Yes. We can't leave it any longer. We've got to get there before Rawlins. We can't risk being seen. You'll get the police to the club. Of course I will. Take care. Soon be over. Obviously, between series of Widows 1 and Widows 2, there, there was this very sad loss of uh, Eva Motley. Was there any consideration at all that you just wanted to put the stop on it and not make any more or was there any discussion about how you would fulfill it for viewers no there was no there was no discussion no i i or i was not party to that to to discussions that went on uh you've got to remember um eva's the loss of eva what happened was in the middle of filming okay. the second series. Oh, so she'd already been recast? Well, yes, she, yes. she had been recast. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Debbie Bishop was a very different Bella. I mean, I thought she was fantastic. Mm. Uh, I thought they were both very good. But it was very, quite interesting that the casting was really quite different for series two. Yes, I, I can only imagine that they very sensibly felt that it wouldn't be possible to recreate... Um, mm the kind of uh, style that that Eva had. So they, I'm assuming, they felt it's better to go in another direction. I just thought they might have considered casting somebody more sort of regal looking like, say, Josette Simon or somebody like that. But but at the same time, I thought Debbie uh, Debbie Bishop was fantastic. She's also a really good singer as well. (laughs) She's a fine singer, very fine. No, as I say, I think... uh, imagine I wasn't party to it but I imagine the producers Linda um, felt that they should go away from that 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 they couldn't recreate that so go in a different direction Nothing but a final demand No one, nowhere Helps you make it in this no man's land Hungry women crying Now they're only crying out for more Hungry winners surviving Now they know what they're surviving 
I heard a wonderful story, and I, I'm hoping it's true, that apparently Linda LaPlante, uh, years later, somebody wrote to her and said, isn't Dolly Rawlings coming up for parole quite soon? And how about you write it? Yeah, I believe that's absolutely true. <laughs> it's just wonderful. I love yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it was true. Mm-hmm. And thank you very much, whoever wrote that. She's out! <laughs> <laughs> You've got to help me, Dolly. I just need to know what you told that Inspector Craig. He grasped me, Dolly. Me own husband. You were right. Can you lay your hands on this? Please, Mrs. Rawlings, don't do this to me. Don't stay here, Angela. You go back to your mum. How much is on the train? 30 to 40 million. So here's to us. And to the biggest train robbery in history. Can I just tell you that uh, um, years ago when I was a studio manager at the BBC in Bush House, I got in a lift and you were in the lift with, with uh, one of your people and uh, I, I, I was so excited because it was the final episode of She's Out and uh, I'd stayed in the lift and stalked you all the way up to the eighth <laughs> floor and I, I got the courage to turn, turn around to you and say, I've just set the uh, video for your final episode tonight. I'm so excited. I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> And you, and you were very gracious about it. <laughs> oh, I would have been delighted. <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago. And then I instantly rushed to tell my mum. I called, I called my mum up. You're listening to Anne Mitchell on SNS Online, recorded incidentally at a home in London uh, with a glass of bubbly on the go. Why not match us at home, readers? Or just put the kettle on. Anyway, for all things Anne, please seek out her website, annemitchell.net, and a Facebook like page, also Anne Mitchell. So clearly, as such an accomplished actor, the Royal Shakespeare Company calls, and you've worked with them on a whole range of productions, some lasting up to 10 hours on stage. I mean, a bit of a marathon for some of these roles. The first one was nine hours. That was oh, Just nine? Oh, just nine. That was, that was a snip. <laughs> Put a bit of effort into it. Eh? Yes. <laughs> that was nine hours. That was the war plays with Gary Oldman. Mm. Uh, yeah. You but, Angels in America as well. Yes, wasn't that a long that, one? That was uh, Angels in America. wasn't for the RSC. Okay. That was for Headlong. That's eight hours. Okay. But for the RSC, I did Tantalus mm. in America and then in, in the UK. That was 12 hours. <laughs> that was amazing. But you do take, presumably, take lunch breaks and, and wee wee breaks and things like that. Yes. A, a marathon is, yeah, you, normally starts in the morning. So people have had breakfast and about 10 o'clock. Then there's a lunch break and then there's a supper break mm. normally. And what's lovely about a marathon, or people bring picnics mm. and have blankets and stuff like that. And what's lovely about it is that those that have been there from the beginning, and sometimes you can go for three plays and mm. then come back another day for right. three, but most people want to do the marathon. Mm. 
And the lovely feeling at the end is you feel that the audience feel they've done it with yeah. you. <laughs> well, absolutely. We're all in it together. I think the thing for me is, you see, I get so fidgety at the theatre. I'm, like, yeah, I'm on one buttock and I'm on the other. I mean, I, it's not that I'm not engaged, but I am a fidgety old thing. I would need my own sofa. I'd have to bring my own sofa and pop it somewhere near the shade of a tree, and then I'd be allowed to wriggle around as much as possible. Then I could, I could enjoy that. Well, I do think... I did hear that in America, when we did Tantalus, the 12-hour one, people brought special cushions yes. to sit on. I think they were those blow-up ones. Oh, yeah, so yeah, that yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, they would be more comfortable. Brilliant. You planning to do any of those again soon? Oh, no. <laughs> I, I mean, I, who knows? Who knows? as well what was Gimme 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 like another role written for you apparently by Jonathan Harvey yes it was written for me by Jonathan oh I loved it Miss Twitch <laughs> it's wonderfully fun well who'd have thought it Linda that after all these years we'd met again I was the hardest screwing ball still when I Linda There's no need to look so scared. <laughs> Not now you've been so nice to me and allowed me to live in your back garden. <laughs> As my young man. And some money. Really? We always thought you were a dirty old dyke. <laughs> Never confuse being the hardest bitch in B-Block with being a dirty old dyke, as your kneecaps. Oh, they're great, thank you. They've held up lovely. <laughs> it was just great fun from mm. beginning to end. Yeah. I absolutely adored it. I love that show so much. Yes, you can do too. no wrong, Jonathan Harvey. I love all these oh, Corrie episodes as me well. Too. Me too. I think he's a terrific writer. <laughs> What was it like working with French and Saunders and Linda LaPlante, uh, uh, Helen Mirren? Oh, it was magic. It was only a day. Mm. We, it was, took a year to get us all together. Oh, my God. Yeah, a whole year. I mean, it was Everyone. extraordinary. Guest star after guest star coming out and saying... Yes. Oh, I forgot. Because I, 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 I wanted to get you say, what a bleeding dump. Of course. You're going to do it for us. Go on. All right. What a bleeding dump. <laughs> I love it. What a bleeding dump. <laughs> you didn't say that two-faced bitch was in there. <laughs> and I know you two from somewhere. Yeah, I thought that. No, no, no. no. Dawn Saunders, isn't it? <laughs> And Mossy. Where's the old man? He's out now, Dolly. It's Anna. <laughs> so what was it like on that day then? Oh, it was a great day. It was oh, great. No, very no. serious, of course. Mm. Comedy is very mm. serious. Oh, yeah. But what was lovely as well, at the time, Lenny, Henry and Dawn were still married. And Lenny came from another studio mm. and came into our studio and he said to Dawn, 
you've waited a long time for this. Uh, and it was just lovely. Uh, he was very, very supportive. And it was a lovely day. They were so um, generous mm. with us. But, of course, Helen wasn't there. We oh, acted without Helen. Right. Couldn't. She came in later yes, when we weren't there mm -hmm. because I guess the producers thought we can't wait any longer. No, this no. is ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> so when I was acting with Helen, I was acting to nothing. Scratch and sniff. Online! With Nick Randall. You're listening to the frankly wonderful and perfectly divine Anne Mitchell on SNS Online. And if you want to comment on this or any other show, then why not join our Facebook page, SNS Online, or Twitter, which is Scratch and Tweet. Past shows are free and downloadable by searching SoundCloud for SNS Online or Mixcloud by searching for me, Nick Randall. Now, she's been called the next matriarch of Albert Square, but for a strong woman, well, she's looking pretty vulnerable at the moment. Now, she's been making a name for herself in Walford as Tanya's fearsome, chain-smoking, no-nonsense <laughs> mum. But is the formidable Cora Cross about to start showing her vulnerable side? That is a question. A massive skeleton, though, is about to hurtle its way out of the closet and send shockwaves through the square. commandment you ever cared about was the 11th thou shalt not get caught and you couldn't even stick to that you're what went wrong with my family sleeping with your fiance's father nanny she's my daughter and she needs me let's see what the police have to say shall we it's my fault is it rainy and her drugs your dad's cancer i never said that i didn't handle that very well I didn't handle this baby very well. It's all my fault. I did what you didn't have the guts to do. And what's that? Look your own daughter in the eye. The daughter you abandoned. Now, I thought as defining roles go, Dolly Rawlings was it, and no other role could trump that. But I also thought it would be a crime if the producers of EastEnders did not at some point create a part for you to play. But you've actually been in it before, haven't you? Yes, I was in it many years ago. I think it's about 15, or maybe more now, years ago. I played Roy's mistress. It was just a three-month gig, and I was dying with cancer. Roy faces a difficult choice now on BBC One as Jane's feeling the pain. And discussing her character's plight actress Anne Mitchell is online right after tonight's EastEnders. I'm sorry, I'm looking for Mr Evans. Roy Evans? He's not here. Can I help you? Not unless you can do miracles. Oh, I'm sorry, love. I've only got two drivers on. They're both doing long-distance jobs. Are you Pat? Yeah. I've heard so much about you. I'm Jane Williams. And I was quite middle-class in, mm. in that role, Jane. So I'm glad they brought you back, and a, a role that is very complex. I find it quite difficult to get a handle on Cora because there's so many different aspects to her. At the moment, as we're speaking this, she's she's hanging around bus shelters, nicking cardigans from the local store. She, you did that yesterday. I watched yeah, you, I naughty watch girl. Yeah. I, did, I didn't <laughs> see it. You yeah. didn't see it. Yeah. You, look, you look wonderful, by the way, radiant. <laughs> But, um, you know, you, there's the issue with uh, illegitimate daughter from years ago and then meeting her again and, and getting uh, sort of fused, if you like, to, to a family that was, were already there. What was the whole process like of casting? Um, I went up for a meeting and uh, I, vid I was videoed like everybody else. Mm. And uh, I don't know who I was 
who else was up for it. And then they rang my agents and said, we'd like to offer her the part. That was Brian Kirkwood, uh, the producer. And that was it. And I did three months first. And then I had to leave because I was doing a play at Hampstead Theatre, Stop Darwa, David Eldridge. And, um, and then they said they wanted me back. So then it's six months, they do. And then after that, it was a year's contract. And it's always been a year's contract. That's, I think that's how EastEnders do oh, okay. it. But a lot of different facets to her. Do you, have you found a really quite interesting part to play? Yes, I've found it enormously interesting. And what I found uh, challenging and interesting mm. was to bring uh, different facets mm. to the character. And, yeah. and, and the writers brought. I found that very, very interesting. Mm. And I was grateful for that, that it mm. wasn't a one-dimensional uh, person. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one question that I ask pretty well any um, actor I've had on the show is this issue about uh, rich, rewarding parts for older women, or indeed any parts for older women, and soap seems to be the way forward. What's your take on, on all that, and do you think there should be more women writers? I do. I think there should be more women writers, more women producers, and certainly more women directors mm-hmm. and camera people. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Yes, in yeah. every branch of the industry. Now, as far as soaps are concerned, I think the opportunities they give mature actors are remarkable. They are absolutely remarkable. I think in many one-off dramas I've seen where the characters in my age group usually have dementia. Yeah, yes, you know? absolutely. They, they're, they're now it's, the, you know, anyone over 50 has got dementia, mm. as it were, as far as I can see when I watch television. <laughs> Um, that's not happening in soaps, unless, of course, it's a particular storyline, which, of course, the management in a soap, certainly at EastEnders, will have tremendous researchers and everybody so that they get it right, mm-hmm. you know. No, I'm very, I feel very strongly about this, Nick. Mm-hmm. Uh, soaps are, aren't given credit for what they're giving mature actors. Mm-hmm. I don't... As Cora, I don't sit in a corner and say, do you want another cup of tea? <laughs> I don't, no, you know. No. I've been in the thick of the action. I've been in a romantic uh, relationship with Timothy West. Well, when you tell someone you're going to snuff it, that's all they harp on about for ages. I just want to enjoy the time I've got lived. Oh, that's all right then, is it? As long as you have fun. Don't matter about the rest of us. Let me make it up to you. Whatever was between us, it's over. And you know how I feel about hospitals. So don't expect a visit. It's amazing what opportunities mm. are given to my generation of actors mm. in soaps. And it should be acknowledged. Mm. When I interviewed Sandy Walsh, uh, we talked about this issue of not being enough writers and we thought perhaps there should be... The generation of older people are larger now yes. in, in society, Indeed. you know. Living longer, yes. living longer, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And perhaps we should, you know, we should have a, a sitcom set in the care home or something like that, so you'd have a, you'd have a whole load of... <laughs> I think it's been done. It, it probably has been waiting for God, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah. We'll have to think of something else, come yeah. on. <laughs> yes, it's, it's been done. 
Well, of course, what's happening now? She's becoming the kind of soothsayer, the wise oh. one. So they tell me. I didn't watch it last night. Mm. But somebody, my son, my oldest yeah. son, um, emailed me from Amsterdam and said, she's becoming the soothsayer. Oh. She's East End a shaman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're listening to Scratch and Sniff with Nick Randall. What a plain dump. So it's part two of the soundtrack of your life, Anne. Have you had any big things about it? Yes. Uh, Marlene Dietrich, I wish you... Oh, I wish you... What's it called? Oh, she's got a lovely voice. Oh, I wish. Um, I wish you well, or something like that. I wish you well. I wish you'd some da 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 a da 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 But most of all, I wish you love. It's that. And she recorded it for her children. Oh. And I, I would like... Oh, that's lovely. Like Let's hear that, Anne. That's for my children. Oh. This is for my children, Sean and Che. I wish you bluebirds In the spring to give your heart a song to sing and then a kiss but more than this i wish you love and in july a lemonade to cool you in I wish you health and more than wealth. I wish you love. My loving hearts and I agree. Now's the time to let you be. So with my best, my very best, I set you free I wish you shelter From the storm Cozy fire To keep you warm But most of all When snowflakes fall I wish you love the time to let you be so with my best my very best I'll set you free I wish you shelter from the storm a cozy fire Keep you warm, but most of all, when snowflakes fall, I wish you love. I wish you love. I wish you love. I wish you. I wish 
Marlena Dietrich, I Wish You Love, which goes out to Sean and Che. So you're currently in EastEnders. You've done all this amazing work on stage, on TV, on film. What is there left for Anne Mitchell? What other challenges could there be out there? Or have you ticked them all off the list? No, I haven't. I've had the most... Now, this is... This is hopefully will happen. Okay. Okay. Um, I did the 70th uh, anniversary of The Citizens last month. I went up and... Um, with Fidelis Morgan, we did this, the Fothering Gale scene from um, Mary Stewart. Yes. And the next day, the artistic director, Dominic Hills, emailed me and said, what would you like to do at the Citizens? And I said, long day's journey into night oh. with Simon Callow. Simon Callow, fantastic. Yeah, so... Hopefully. But that is a very intense piece. Yes, it is intense. Yeah, That's yeah. the one I read when I was 15. Yes, yeah, I reckon, waited, Eugene. Yeah, I've waited all these years <laughs> to do that. Uh, that would hopefully happen in 2017. Right. We're talking with Dominic, Simon and I, as we speak. Um, so so we'll, we'll be in the front row, me and, me and my lovely Andy, waving your arm. Oh, great. I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> that would be lovely. Oh, and just before I go... Um, here is your celebrity goodie bag. Oh my goodness! Yes. Do you there's want some me champagne. To go? You can open it if you want. Ooh, yes. And there's some chockies and all sorts dreams. of stuff. It's posh, posh teas. Oh, fabulous! And uh, a posh, posh cup Ooh, to drink it in. Goodness. Oh, I just love it. My goodness. And the, and the saucer as well. Beautiful. <laughs> oh, thank you. And on that note, Anne Mitchell, thank you so much for joining uh, Scratch and Sniff tonight. I've had a lovely time. Thank you, Nick. And our thanks also go to the BBC, London Weekend Television, Euston Films and Paul Condon. We revert bite-sized for our next few editions, featuring a children's author, a hypnotherapist and a stand-up comedian. Now, if that isn't the start of a joke, I don't know what is. But for now, from Anne Mitchell and myself, Nick Randall, goodbye.